And thank you, gentlemen, for leading us today, Viano and Simon and Sean, the amazing three wise men. <laughs> Plus, they had another guy up there <laughs> today. But uh, I just want to thank these gentlemen for being so faithful. You know what? It's just an amazing time we live in. And, you know, we can look at all of the obstacles and all of the challenges. Uh, but there's a faithful team here. And uh, these these gentlemen come in and prepare. And, you know, we're, we're doing what we can do uh, in in respect of, uh, you know, the laws of the land. I suppose we could, we could disobey and we could, you know, do our own thing and have uh, 50 people here this morning. But, you know, folks, it's a, it's a really good challenge uh, to realize that church, again, and we've learned this for the last five years, church isn't the day that you meet, it's not the place that you meet, it's that you make a decision to meet. And this has this experience has stretched all of us, but hopefully it will come to an end sooner or later. But uh, we are here this morning from Institut Biblique du Québec in the city of Longueuil in their Bible College Chapel, which uh, we uh, they have made available to us. So we got the place looking like a studio here. There's wires all over. You can't see that. You just see my face in the camera and the guy's face is in the camera. There's wires and boxes and all kinds of things everywhere uh, that we have to set up and take down every Sunday. But we look forward uh, to getting back to the theater at some point in the near future. So um, today is a start of a new series called What's So Big About Easter? We'll get into that in a moment, but a few announcements for you. I always mention our missionaries by name every single Sunday, but their, their faces on the screen, so you do not forget them. You see the mans there, Don and Marie-José, if we can, there we go, good. And um, uh, again, they're engaged in global leadership training and a few other things. Look them up online at paoc.org, P like Peter, aoc.org, and just do a search for M-A-N-N, man, and they will turn up and you'll see all of the stuff that they do. Uh, the Charbonneaux are in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, uh, very easy to keep track of through their website and their Facebook page, as is E.J. Tupé, who is in urban Toronto. An advocate, E.J., is for uh, those facing uh, much injustice there in urban Toronto. Uh, very, um, a very interesting ministry uh, that you're going to hear more about in the days ahead if you haven't already, but we're uh, privileged to partner with these three uh, families uh, as they reach the one who is far from God together with us. A uh, couple of things coming uh, Wednesday nights. We had a great uh, run the last five weeks of uh, a clash of kingdoms, and we're going to continue that from March 10th to April 7th. Uh, again, in this theme, this time it's called Cultures in Conflict. Boy, if there's one thing we've learned about the last year, it is that there is a definite uh, conflict when you look at the the Christian worldview and the culture's worldview. There is a definite conflict, and there will always be that conflict. And how do you navigate in that conflict? How do you uh, believe uh, and walk Christianly in a world that really, it, to a large degree, opposes it? How do you be in the world and not of the world? What about your morals? What about your ethics? What about the things you say and do and all that stuff? It's always a challenge. And uh, in this series, uh, they go on-site. Uh, uh, this time it'll be in, um, 
I think Corinth and Athens, where you go back into the pages of the Bible and you see Paul in the book of Acts dealing with a culture not that dissimilar to our own and how he communicated the gospel message and lived it in front of their eyes. So, uh, in order to be a part of this, you need to register. Uh, There's a group of, oh, I don't know what it is, about six families or so that were part of the first run. Uh, But if you have not been a part of that group, you do need to register. Just go to our website and click the image there, and that will get you in so that I can send you the Zoom link. It's all on Zoom. It's one hour on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8. And tomorrow night, we're continuing our live question questions and answers series, and I'm going to do a little look at the question, why should I trust the four Gospels? It's the Easter season. Everything that we know about Jesus comes from four documents that are 2,000 years old, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why should we believe them anyway? Uh, So we're going to take a look at that tomorrow night at uh, 7. It's a half an hour broadcast uh, that you'll enjoy very much. And uh, those of you who want to take a step further and go deeper. Um, We have formed a discipleship group, which is running really well, and uh, there's, I don't know what it is, six or seven people involved in that, and every week they have something to do. I give them homework. I give them challenges about the message that they hear, give them things to do. They're praying for one another, praying for different people in our church as well, and uh, so this is really important when you want to go further and actually grow in your spiritual life. You can join that uh, simply through our Facebook page. It is a private group. Um, And also, thank you for your giving and your faithfulness and your consistency and your generosity. Uh, You always do that um, through our website. And uh, some of you uh, uh, send it in the mail to our mailing address and so on, e-transfer, whatever. But uh, thank you so much for that. And a reminder that our gatherings, right, they stay online for now. Yes, the movie theater is open, but uh, places of worship, it's 10 people, maximum, no singing. So it just doesn't really justify, um, you know, paying the rent at Cineplex uh, for 10 people. And so those are the rules for churches, and we follow uh, the government decrees and so on, and so does Cineplex. So we will wait until our code changes from, uh, what is it, red to orange, and probably there'll be some easing of the restrictions by then, but for now we're all online. And those of you who are members of this church, we will have our annual meeting. We do that once a year, right? We'll have that uh, March the 17th. It's a Wednesday night. Um, at 7 p.m. So we will forego our Bible study just for that night, and we will have our annual meeting at 7 p.m. If you are a member of the church, I will send you a Zoom link so that you can participate in that meeting, okay? So uh, today we start this new series, What's So Big About Easter? And uh, the whole point of this, uh, this is uh, we're in the season of, of Lent in some Christian traditions, and Lent is a really cool idea. It's almost like Advent at Christmas, and you're you're preparing for Easter. Many people fast in the Lent season. Uh, they might fast a food. They might fast a particular habit. They might fast uh, media. They might fast screens. Uh, they might fast various things. And some people go through uh, uh, the 40 days of, of uh, temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We'll talk about that next week. But it is a, it is a time to prepare and uh, try to identify 
with the Easter season in a deeper way. And so for the next few weeks, right up to Easter, we're going to talk about this. What's so big about Easter? I mean, isn't Easter just about eggs and bunnies? Well, you say, no, it can't be about eggs and bunnies, and we can have my monitor down if it's on. It'll be picked up in the live feed. I'm not sure if it's on, but if it is on, turn my monitor down. Um, and so if, uh, if that's all that Easter is, eggs and bunnies, well, you're not going to get very far with that. And some say, okay, well, Easter is about Jesus, okay, and it's a bunch of people who believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. And so that's 2,000 years ago, though. And even if it really happened, what's the big deal for me in my life? I mean, you've got a bunch of people around the world who believe it, and maybe they'll go take a pilgrimage to, to the Holy Land, and they'll go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or something, but that's good for them. But what's the big deal about Easter anyway? Isn't this just a thing for those people? So I want to try and enlarge your view of Easter so that you see that it is a really, really big deal. Um, as, and today we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus as an introduction to this. A uh, little bit of um, an assignment for you uh, in the Lent season. I've given this to the discipleship group, but all of you should do this. And we'll put the slide on the screen there. You should watch a... Uh, streamed TV series called The Chosen. And uh, The Chosen is, in my view, without question, uh, one of the most creative, um, uh, compelling, um, contemporary portrayals of the Gospels and of the life of Jesus that I have ever seen. And I've seen most of them. This one is in a league all of its own, and I'm going to challenge you on this. This series is so well done that you can, without being embarrassed, share it with a, with a person who is not a Christian. Uh, I, in my view, they will actually like it. And while I'm on that subject, hit that share button on your screen uh, as well. Okay, I'll challenge you there like I do every week. But you should watch this series. And some of you, even just looking at the picture on the screen, you say, what? That's a weird portrayal of Jesus. Uh, that's, he looks so human. Uh, and that's a little bit about what we're going to talk uh, about today. Uh, and this series, incredibly well done, and I think it will give you a wider scope and an understanding of the things that we read about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So today, uh, and by the way, it's an app that you download. Uh, it'll work on Apple and Android platforms uh, on a tablet or a phone. You can cast it to your television if you want. Eight parts, the first season, entirely crowdfunded and just superb uh, in the way that they present it. So today we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus and try and understand why this is so significant uh, for us. When we talk about Jesus and his baptism, we really don't talk about it that often, the truth be told, because the baptism of Jesus is like a little blip on a radar. Uh, it goes by in three, four verses, and that's it. And we sort of look at it and say, well, okay, uh, I'm not sure what that really has to do with my own life. It's certainly 
you know, something that has all kinds of, uh, raises all kinds of questions, but I'm not so sure what it has to do with my own life, but I want you to see it perhaps in a different way today, and um, if you learn anything from this morning, uh, learn this, that Jesus was God and man. So, Usually in churches, we have no problem saying Jesus is God, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Lord, and we have all these terms that we use for Jesus to show his deity. And we usually have no problem with that. Where we have a problem is with his humanity, and we really struggle with this. Um, and I think there are various reasons why we struggle with it. But if you do not understand that Jesus is both God and man, you will likely miss the significance of the baptism of Jesus and much of his life. So when we talk about the incarnation, the idea of God becoming flesh, our problem is that we watch too much Marvel. Uh, we, we we're too absorbed in popular culture, uh, and we and we think that the incarnation is kind of like a Marvel movie or a Superman, where God is in disguise as Jesus. So if he would just take off his cloak, you would see the you know the. The M for Messiah on his on his chest, and he's just he's just in disguise kind of thing. And we have this idea, almost like the incarnation is God shape shifted into Jesus, like some kind of a movie, and that the incarnation is like a shape shifter. And you know what we what we see in Jesus in the Gospels is kind of a disguise. It's God in disguise. It's not God in disguise when you read the Gospels, okay? In the incarnation, we have Jesus becoming human. Jesus always was, always existed. You see this in the Bible. When you read the whole Bible, you see that he's there. Even at creation, he's there. So, in the incarnation, he becomes flesh. He takes on a human body. So, when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about one person with two natures, the nature of God, the nature of humanity. So, get the ship shape, shape shifter out of your mind, the superhero, the Marvel concept out of your mind. Those kinds of incarnations you find in pagan literature, the Greco-Roman world, but this is not the incarnation of the New Testament. So when you look at the baptism of Jesus, you see it in all four Gospels, and it's like the spotlight turns on. It's almost like, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're on a dark stage, and you're, you've, you've gone to see some type of play or some type of Broadway show, and everything is dark, and all of a sudden, bang, the spotlight comes on the subject who is speaking or singing or whatever they're doing. And the baptism of Jesus is very much like that. The spotlight turns on, pow, on his life. So you find this in Matthew 3, Mark 1. Luke 3, John 1, and it just comes and goes super, super fast. So, in Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by 
John. Yes, that's John the Baptist. And John tried to stop him, tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus gives this interesting response. This is the only response that we have recorded for us in this event, something that Jesus says, uh, at least specifically, and he says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Curious statement. So John says, okay, I'll baptize you. And this is what happens. As soon as Jesus was baptized, which was like being dipped into, into the water, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open. So presumably, there was some kind of uh, miraculous thing that took place, and the skies open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. Again, a, a miraculous, supernatural thing takes place here. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You turn to Mark for a little bit of clarity, and we have the great advantage of having the four Gospels. Uh, remember that these four uh, books, if you will, were not written by four guys who sat around a table and had a meeting, you know, and, uh, like a Zoom meeting and said, okay, Matthew, you write this, and Mark, you write this, and Luke, you write this, and John, you write this. Yeah, 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 that sounds like a good plan. That's not how the Gospels came together. These people uh, did not uh, uh, collaborate with one another. They wrote independently. It was copied independently. It was eventually assembled into the New Testament, but this was not done in a little corner somewhere uh, where they, they were able to say, okay, let's put together a jigsaw puzzle. We have to do that now on the other side of the story. Uh, but fortunately, we have Mark and Luke and John. Back then in the first century, this stuff was still being developed and copied. And so if someone had, uh, you know, a copy of Mark, that would be, wow, I've got Mark, you know. So here we turn to Mark and we see how Mark words it, and it's even less information. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, same thing. Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, same thing. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. End of story as per Mark. You turn over to Luke, you say, I want some more information, some more clarity. In Luke, we have a physician. He's quite detailed, but he doesn't really give us that much more detail. And so we're kind of frustrated even when we read Luke. But this is the way that Luke uh, writes it. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying curious that Luke mentions that Jesus is praying. We're not sure what he's praying about. Heaven was open. The Holy Spirit descended on him bodily in the form of a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I'm well pleased, and we're told there that he's about 30 years old when it happens. And then lastly, we can turn to John, and John gives us a, a almost a completely different perspective of this. Um, and he gives the vantage point of John the Baptist with a lot of information about him. Uh, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is quite a statement. We'll unpack it in a moment. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Wow, that's quite a vantage point from John the baptizer. And so John gives this testimony after the fact. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize, presumably God, uh, to baptize with water, told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this is John the Baptist's statement. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. The spotlight turns on, bang, into the life of Jesus. Now, what's going on here is that these four writers want us to understand something, and they're doing it from different vantage points. But basically, there's three players in this little event. There's John the Baptist, there's Jesus, and there's God. And each of them have different things to say about this event when Jesus is baptized. So John says, I need to be baptized by you. We'll put it on the screen fast. John says, I need to be baptized by you. John calls him the Lamb of God. John calls him the Son of God. John says he's the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Wow, these are, these are really strong statements that John is making. Because uh, when he says the Lamb of God, in the minds of the people who heard that, this is ringing all kinds of bells. You've got a reference to a lamb way from the back, way in the Old Testament. The most famous is from the book of Exodus. So you have the Passover lamb, and they take the blood of the lamb, they put it on the doorposts of the Hebrew homes, the 10th plague, and when the angel of death comes, all of the firstborn in Egypt, their lives are taken, including even the livestock, their lives are taken, but the Passover lamb's blood protects, covers the Hebrews. And so the Passover meal is celebrated annually with this idea, this concept that this lamb's blood was a covering over the homes. And here you have John saying, the lamb of God. A famous prediction in the, in the major prophet Isaiah, which Jewish people avoid uh, to a degree because it's so... It, it, it's, it speaks so clearly about Jesus. They reinterpret it and say that it speaks about Israel or it speaks about God. Uh, but clearly, the New Testament writers who were Jewish thought that it was referring to Jesus. And it talks about a lamb that was led to the slaughter to atone for the sins of Israel. 
and ultimately for the sins of the world. And here you have John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The eyes of the people who were hearing this, the ears of the people who were hearing this say, wow, that is quite a claim. We've been waiting a long, long time for someone to come who was the Lamb of God, if he really is indeed the Lamb of God. And John goes even further and calls him the Son of God. Now, we've learned in the Wednesday night thing that it, across the Roman Empire, that's what they called the emperor. He was called the Son of God. You had imperial cult worship back then in the first century. Uh, the Jews, of course, rejected this, but across the Roman Empire, the emperor, the Caesar, was God, and he was called the Son of God and worshipped as a deity. And so here you have uh, John calling Jesus, declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. This would definitely ruffle the Roman political world, but it would also ruffle the Jewish world. Because um, to, to make this type of exclusive claim to say that anyone is the Son of God is basically saying they're of the same stuff that God is. It's basically deifying the person. So this is a really, really strong statement that John the Baptist has, and it would have got people back then, wow, you're saying something pretty incredible. And then you have what Jesus says, and he only mentions, he only says one thing apparently in this event, uh, let, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. And we wonder what does he mean by this, presumably that he is our example, that in following uh, in in baptism, he is an example for us who follow him that we too should be baptized in order to, as he says, fulfill all righteousness. So, I mean, he didn't have anything to repent from. Here you have John preaching this, this fierce baptism of repentance and calling people to turn away from their sin. Well, clearly Jesus didn't have anything to repent from. So he seems to be doing this as an example of devotion and submission. That's all he says. Luke tells us he's praying, but we don't know what he's praying about. They must be praying about something. And then ultimately you see what God says. And what God says here is quite something. And this is the first time that you have the voice of God audibly speaking as if um, to confirm and validate something. This is the first time we have the voice of God in a long, long time. And pow, he speaks, this is my son whom I love. Now, remember, Jesus is human. He's not Clark Kent in disguise. He's not a Marvel character who's sh shape-shifted. He is God, yes, but he is human, yes. And here you have this statement. Can you imagine what Jesus must have felt as a human to have this kind of validation from his father? This is my son. This is the beginning 
of the public ministry of Jesus. His life has been relatively quiet for three decades. He's grown up in a, in a, a standard uh, first century Jewish home. Uh, his father is probably a mason or some type of carpenter who worked with brick, who worked with wood and the various tools of the day, uh, but fairly normal except for what we see when he's 12 years old and he ends up in the, in the temple teaching people and asking questions and saying that he's in his father's house, which, which you know, shocks his parents. But his life has been relatively quiet until now, when he's about 30 years old. And he has this moment of validation from his father. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If you were Jesus back then, that would be, that would be pretty powerful in your life. That would be pretty affirming. These are the perfect words of encouragement and admonition that really every child needs. That's a message unto itself. But this statement um, is not brand new here. W what God is saying, he has, in a sense, said before, and he will say again. One of the most famous mentions of this phrase is, again, back in the book of Isaiah. I'll flip there. You have it on your screen from Isaiah chapter 42, which the Jewish audience there would know. And here's how it's worded from Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations and he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out in faithfulness. He will bring forth justice and so on. You have this, this picture of the servant of the Lord in whom God loves, in whom he's well pleased. Psalm chapter 2, you see the same thing. This, this uh, uh, I am your father, you are my son. So this messianic figure that they were looking forward to for hundreds into real thousands of years, you have this audible statement made by God himself, we're told, confirming that this is the one. This is the one who you've been waiting for. This is my son whom I love in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I'll pause here because I know that there's people who are watching saying, good grief, you expect me to believe that the sky opened and that some kind of magical dove descended on Jesus and that a voice came from the sky or from who knows where. You expect me to believe this. I'm really skeptical of this. Well, that's okay. You can, you can try and find a way around it. You can say, well, you know, maybe they were seeing things. Maybe they're just wishing that Jesus would be this. And maybe John the Baptist is a little too enthusiastic. You know, he was a bit of a weird guy eating locusts and, you know, dressing strangely out in the wilderness. Maybe, maybe he had too much first century drugs or something. Maybe he's a little enthusiastic. Maybe he's seeing things. Maybe they're all seeing things. Maybe they want this to be true and so on. You can do that. The problem is that this is going to happen again uh, in, uh, for example, Matthew chapter 17. 
And it's going to be even worse over there. When Jesus is transfigured, where he's physically changed, where his body changes, and you've got two dead people who appear on a mountain, and other people see it. So Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration of Jesus, he is, his, he's physically changed. He looks different in front of them. His face is shining brilliantly like the sun. His clothes are white like a, like a bright light. And then you've got Moses and Elijah up on the mountain with him. Those men are died a long, long time before. And they're having a conversation with Jesus. Peter is watching this. He says, well, let's build some little huts here so you all can stay the night. And of course, he doesn't know what he's saying, we're told. And then there's this voice that says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him, the disciples who were there, they hear this, they're terrified. Jesus says, get up, don't be afraid. Everything changes back to the way that it was. And Jesus says, you keep your mouth closed about this. You don't tell anybody about this for now. It's a remarkable moment, the transfiguration, but so was the baptism of Jesus. If you have trouble with the supernatural at the baptism of Jesus, you're going to have trouble with the supernatural at the transfiguration of Jesus. And the trouble with that is this thing is mentioned over and over and over again. Peter mentions it. John mentions it. And they talk about being eyewitnesses to the voice of God affirming who Jesus was. And that's what's being taught to us here right out of the gate. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? And pow, the light goes on at his baptism, and it is crystal clear to the audience what's being said here. Now, 2,000 years later, what's the application for us? So many questions can run through our mind and there's so many angles that the baptism of Jesus can affect us. Question, who is Jesus to you? Is he great teacher, hung around with the low lives of society, really liked his personality, really liked how he challenged the status quo, how he talked about love and all this. Great teacher, great person, great example. Love the Sermon on the Mount and, you know, all of that. Is that who Jesus is to you? That is a good picture, but it is a somewhat incomplete picture. Is he a person, a rabbi, a teacher, a good man, or is he more than that? What's being taught here when, when, we're, when we're told he's the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world, he's more than your average person. He's more than your above-average person. He's more than a great teacher. He's more than a great rabbi. The claim is he is the Messiah, the God-man that humanity has been waiting for. And you've got to make a decision 
about that. I have to make a decision about that. The moment that we read the Gospels, we're making a decision about them. Is Jesus who the Gospels say he is, or is he, well, you know, great person in the past, lived and died, not so sure about his resurrection, his body must be somewhere, but that's all he was. Okay, well, you've made your decision. So we have to decide who is Jesus. Next question that can be asked, what is sin anyway? John the Baptist says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin of the world. In the 21st century, those words are very offensive. When we talk about the world being somehow bound in sin. You really believe that that's going to alter the way that you think about life. That's going to alter the way that you understand humanity and the human condition. I would submit to you that that's a very accurate presentation of the human condition. What do we see around us? We see the stranglehold of sin on planet Earth. There is a, there's a great illustration of it. Uh, in this virus that is worldwide. Uh, sin is a worldwide problem. Wherever you go on planet Earth, you're going to see the stranglehold of sin in humanity. And we're told here that this Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Well, how's he going to do that? Well, if we understand what the Old Testament taught, if we understand what those people would have understood, Somewhere, somehow, that lamb is going to be slain. He is going to atone for humanity's transgression somewhere, somehow. Other questions. What about the Trinity can be asked by looking at the baptism of Jesus? Because in the baptism of Jesus, you see the God, the Father speaking. You see the Spirit of God descending somehow visually in a physical form as a dove and remaining on the shoulder of Jesus, and you see Jesus all at the same time. So you see, in theological terms, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all doing something all at the same time. That's a really, really big deal when it comes to the nature of God because it means that God is in three distinct persons. It adds weight to that argument. You know, there are those who say that, that you know, uh, God exists in different modes at different times. You know, sometimes he's the Father and sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Well, here you see all three persons active at the same time. Quite interesting. Another application for your life. Have you been baptized? Jesus says it's proper to do this for all righteousness. He was baptized. He didn't even need to be baptized. He seems to be doing this in an exemplary fashion. Well, what about you and what about me? If we claim to be followers of him, have we demonstrated this by being baptized? And another question that you don't see on the screen there, uh, not only who is Jesus, what is sin, all these things are being introduced to us in rapid-fire succession here, just at his baptism. But who are you? Who are you? Jesus had a very clear understanding as to who he was. 
John the Baptist had a very clear understanding as to who he was. Who are you? What is God uh, trying to affirm in your life? What is God trying to shine the spotlight on in your life? All of these things are, are kind of sprinkled through this moment that goes by so, so quickly as we read the gospel story. So I'm going to invite the band to head back to, the, to their places, and uh, they've prepared for a, for a song at the end here. I'll let them do whatever that they want to do, and they'll, uh, they'll do some, some music at the end, and you can keep your, um, keep your screens on and enjoy the music with them. But this is a kind of an introduction to what we are going to see over and over and over again. Next week, we'll look at the temptation of Jesus. We'll look at the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. But I want to challenge you with this one question today. Who is he to you? That is a decision that all of us will make. As soon as you hear about him, you make a decision about him. What is the decision that you have? Is he a man? Is he the son of God who takes away the sin of the world? Is he a myth to you? Is he a legend? Is he a Marvel character? Is he your God and your Savior? Lord, I pray for each person who is watching and listening at this moment and those who will do so later, those who will listen online. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would impact us this, uh, this season as we walk toward Easter with that ultimate question, who is Jesus? And I pray, Lord, that if he is just a figment of someone's imagination in the eyes of some, that their view would change and he would be something greater than that. If he seems to be uh, a, a distant uh, figure from the past, Lord, that, that that figure from the past would become something real and someone real in our lives today. Lord, for those who struggle with doubt and questions and their faith is failing, I pray, God, that you would build conviction and you would bring encouragement. And God, for those of us who feel the grip of sin, which strangles us, I pray that you would set people free that the Jesus who is alive today would be a Savior in people's lives. Lord, we reach out to you and call out to you and say, God, save us again. Uh, have mercy on me, a sinner, we say, God, and refresh our lives and fill our lives with your Spirit, for you are a gentle Savior even though you are a judge as well. So God, help us to get closer to Jesus in these days ahead, we pray. Amen.
Christ is Lord. I believe. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection. Rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Simon. And Viano and Sean. So remember tomorrow night. We're going to do the question, can I trust the four Gospels? And Wednesday night, we'll continue our Bible study series through Zoom. God bless you, everyone. Have a great, great Sunday.